Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. We're online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. Our April edition is out on the streets across the city. You can find it in our red and white news boxes in more than 60 public libraries, as well as independent bookstores, cafes, social movement centers, and other venues. And we will have another issue coming out at the very beginning of May. I'm joined today by my co-host, Amma Gagarian. Hi, John. It's great to be here with you on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. We have another fantastic show for you today. Uh, in our first section, we'll talk We'll talk with uh, workers at Trader Joe's uh, who are on the verge of voting on whether or not to unionize at their store at Essex Crossing in Lower Manhattan. We'll also have some other labor news updates. We'll also be hearing from uh, some tenant organizers down in Coney Island who have been fighting against privatization of their NYCHA complexes, uh, which has been happening in the city since 2016. And in the uh, second half of this show, we'll get an update on the, on the New York State budget impasse in Albany with Socialist State Senator Jabari Brisport of Brooklyn. Uh, we'll find out more about uh, what uh, has uh, – Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul and the legislature at odds, uh, starting with uh, criminal ref- uh, justice reform and bail reform and various other topics. But first, we turn uh, we turn to labor news here in New York. Uh, uh, workers at the Trader Joe's in uh, at Essex Crossing in Lower Manhattan will begin voting uh, tomorrow and through Thursday on whether or not to unionize that Trader Joe's, the discount uh, grocery uh, chain um, has had seven stores seeking union recognition so far across the country. Uh, There have been uh, votes in favor of unionization in Hadley, Massachusetts, uh, Minneapolis and Louisville and several other stores are weighing whether to uh, make that move as well, including the one here in New York. Uh, There was a rally uh, outside the store on Grand Street, uh, uh, this morning, and, and WBAI's Taylor Fleming was there, and she spoke with some of the workers as they uh, prepare for this uh, historic moment. company for about three and a half years now and um, I've seen a lot of the great things that we started out with be taken away from us and I think really we all saw it come to a culmination during the COVID-19 pandemic when at first we weren't even allowed to wear masks we were blocked from a lot of protections and once those were given to us as quickly as we got them they were taken away and a lot of people felt unsafe felt cheated and we're having a hard time speaking up trying to get those things back for themselves honestly it's helped me feel even closer to my coworkers knowing what their um, needs are, what their concerns are, and um, knowing that we have their backs and that they have ours and want us to do this for them. Yes, we have amazing support. We have majority support, but it's like you never know with an election. I'm feeling excited and confident, but I'm also weary. There is definitely um, a contingent of anti-union workers at our store. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, 
just been a bit disheartening to see, but definitely feeling proud, so proud of the organizers here and the workers standing together. And I really do believe that together we will be able to come through a win. In fact, most people want to continue working here for a long time, but it's just because we want this job to be sustainable, to like actually be able to pay rent, bills, healthcare for people who have kids, like support their families with this job. Um, I'm definitely very hopeful. I am just really hoping people turn out and vote tomorrow and Thursday. That was uh, workers outside Trader Joe's earlier today at a rally. Uh, footage, uh, again, made possible by WBAI's Taylor Fleming. Thank you for that, Taylor. And, and uh, Amba, uh, your thoughts. You've covered a number of these uh, uh, unionization campaigns over the last couple of years. Right. Well, I think one thing that's important to mention is that this has been an ongoing uh, fight for two years now. So for two years, they've been in the planning processes and the campaign processes. They've had a core organizing community always on the ground from two to four people, which doesn't sound like many, but a lot of times it's hard to keep up any core organizing committee for that long. So um, I, I know that they've been on the ground and that the the core organizers are have been employees for um upwards of five years. So uh, uh, they were pushed to move during uh, uh, the effects of COVID on their workplace, like many, many workers across the country that we've been seeing in this uh, upsurge in unionization. And uh, a final straw, which we reported on a few weeks ago, but the final straw was when there was a sewage collapse in the Trader Joe's and um employees that got pushed over the limit and so now they had they had enough to sign cards they had over a majority of their cards signed so that was employees saying yes uh they they would be down to vote for a union so we'll see what happens we'll be holding our breath till april 20th which is also when oakland will be voting uh the oakland trader joe's uh so so we'll be watching and we'll be continuing to report on this keep up with us in our in our upcoming issue right and we have some uh, other uh, labor news we want to Take a few minutes to to round up here. Uh, uh, service industry workers like those at uh, Trader Joe's, uh, Starbucks, REI, and other uh, venues have been unionizing at a, a rapid clip, uh, really unexpected up until a couple of years ago. And the latest uh, news we have uh, from Burlington, Vermont, uh, uh, workers at the flagship Ben & Jerry's store uh, there yesterday announced uh, – they're forming a union uh, called Scoopers United. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the company has said they will respect the workers' right to unionize. Obviously, Ben & Jerry uh, you know, uh, has a, a very progressive image. Uh, you know, some uh, out, out, outfits like Starbucks and Trader Joe's have uh, gone to the mat to try to stop uh, union drives. Uh, ben & Jerry's, which is owned by Unilever, says they will honor this. So uh, we'll see. Uh, how that unfolds, and then uh, that's a big that's a that's a notable difference, right? Is that Trader Joe's and Ben and Jerry's, while they're big corporations, they have this uh, more people friendly mo, and and we we've seen a slight difference with Trader Joe's. While there's still been huge union busting, they've been able to start negotiating the workers who have already unionized with the Trader Joe's management, and that's how you really get the goods. That's how you get your first contract. Whereas at Amazon, no negotiation has happened. So continue, John. Right. And uh, speaking of uh, negotiations uh, leading uh, to victory and or well, organizing uh, 
leading to negotiations and then to victory uh, across uh, the Hudson over in New Jersey. A big strike uh, last week at Rutgers University. The flagship campus uh, is in uh, New Brunswick. There's also satellite campuses in Jersey City and Camden. I hope I'm not leaving out any other Jersey towns that have a um, a Rutgers campus. Uh, and you had uh, 9,000 uh, faculty um, who uh, went on strike, the first strike in uh, Rutgers history. Uh, and one of the things that um, really jumped out to me, I saw uh, this clip on social media last week uh, that we're going to play here in a second of um, of, of striking workers at Rutgers, uh, hundreds of them singing in, in unison, uh, uh, serenading a university uh, president, uh, Jonathan uh, Holloway. Uh, um, let's uh, listen to that. So they were singing, uh, hey, Holloway, I want to know if you're going to raise my wage. Uh, Jonathan Holloway, uh, being the Rutgers University uh, president. Um, right. And to recap, 9,000 Rutgers faculty from three faculty unions went on strike last Monday. This is the first strike in the university's 256-year history. And a framework agreement was reached over the weekend after round-the-clock negotiations were overseen by New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy. The focus of this strike was lifting up poorly paid, non-tenured faculty at Rutgers. And under this contract, part-time adjunct professors will receive a 48% pay increase and graduate students will receive a 33% pay increase and increase job security. Not too much. This is not too much to ask a university where the president makes $1 million per year and the football coach coach makes, wait for it, $8 million per year. And And they didn't even have a winning season last year. And they didn't even have a winning season last year. And uh, as we said, there's been unionization upsurge in general. And this is a part of a wave of campus organizing unions and campus strikes uh, across the country, public, private, and uh, different grade levels. Um, yeah. Right. And, and um, uh, you know, one thing that stood out, two things that stood out uh, to me was the way the the full time tenured faculty uh, fought so tenaciously uh, on behalf of their their adjunct uh, part time uh, colleagues who uh, do a lot of the teaching at uh, universities these days, but are paid only a fraction of what the the full time uh, tenured uh, faculty make. Uh, so that's a, a big issue in academia, and and in a lot of places, the full time faculty sometimes sit it out. And, and as long as they're doing well, but at Rutgers, you saw some uh, really uh, strong solidarity there across all ranks of uh, of the professoriate and, and on behalf in particular of the lowest paid members of the faculty. And also in New Jersey, uh, they had the ability to go on strike here in New York. We have the 1967 Taylor law, which uh, outlaws uh, public sector workers being able to strike it, it, 
there's very serious fines and other penalties that come with the illegal public sector strikes here in New York. So, um, it, you know, if, if New York is a union town, we certainly need a New York state to repeal the, um, Taylor law at some point. Um, and just, uh, real quickly, a, uh, a couple other, uh, updates, uh, an, another story we've, we've been covering on, uh, especially on, uh, indie Twitter it is, uh, uh, home healthcare workers, uh, many of them, uh, uh, Chinese American or other, uh, immigrant, uh, community from other immigrant communities, uh, ha- had a three day, uh, protest encampment, um, outside city hall, uh, last week. Uh, they are continuing to demand the end, uh, of a t- practice of a 24 hour workday in which they're only paid 13 hours, um, when they are taking care of uh, elderly people in their homes. They want a maximum of uh, 12-hour shifts. Uh, there's a measure in front of city council, intro 175, that has been stalled there. Council Speaker Adrian Adams has so far uh, refused to bring that up for a vote. Uh, the protesters vowed to return on May 1st, so we will be following that story. Also, there was protests last week. Municipal retirees, their health care coverage is being uh, switched uh, from Medicare to privately run Medicare Advantage. We've covered that before, um, now being done unilaterally by Mayor Adams. More than 500 uh, retirees turned out for protests last week, the largest so far. Let's listen to retired Dominic Casas talk about the sense of betrayal he and many other retired city workies, workers feel by the mayor's move to shift their health care coverage from Medicare to privately run Medicare Advantage. Firefighter, I came on the job in 1987. I worked in Engine 233 in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Worked in Ladder 174 in uh, East Flatbush, Brooklyn, and then I worked in the Bronx, Ladder 39, top of the Bronx. We, we negotiated contracts in the 90s that gave us certain benefits, and we got very low pay raises to get these benefits. So the contention is we did our part, whether it's the fire department, police, or other city agencies, we did our part. And the city now doesn't want to do their part. After 25, 30 years, now they, they decide, oh, we don't want to pay for this anymore. So they want to t- change these benefits that we already have, that we're acclimated to and accustomed to for us and our families, and they want to give us something less. But they're telling us it's something better, but it isn't. And we're going to be forced into a substandard care, not a better care. But the city's um, going to save $600 million a year on us, and this is what they're offering. There's no way this is better care. These future city agencies and employees are all going to be subject to the same health insurance. And anytime I go out that door, I may not come back again. I may be burned. I may be killed. I may be hurt or injured severely. And I don't understand that why the city is okay with letting people put their lives on the line like that and then you're going to jerk them around and you're going to change their benefits but you decide 25 years later you don't want to pay for this the unions here that it may be somewhat less prominent if you will you're the average city worker who doesn't get all that recognition that maybe the cops in the fire department do but you know there's a lot of people who serve this city and and this is just not right what you do all right, that was a firefighter, a retired firefighter Dominic Casase, uh, 
narrating much of that, uh, f- uh, footage from the Indies, Sue Brisk. Um, this is a story we'll continue to follow. Expect the retirees to fight this every step of the way. Speaking of retirees, uh, Amba in France, the protests uh, continue there over President Macron's uh, drive to raise the uh, retirement age from 62 to 64. Right. The streets were full again this past weekend as police and protesters engaged in open classes, clashes, and a police station in the provincial capital of Rennes was set ablaze, a visual that went viral on social media. And this, these have been the biggest protests that France has seen since 2007, which is saying something because protest is much more prevalent there. Um, and they're ongoing. So we'll be watching to see if, uh, this ongoing protest changes anything. Um, or if it'll just be pure police repression from here on out after the Constitutional Council's decision. Right. On Friday, uh, the Francis Constitutional Council, which I, I think is something like their Supreme Court, uh, upheld uh, uh, President Macron's uh, power to unilaterally enact uh, the increase in the retirement age. He, he was facing defeat in Parliament and used uh, a rarely used constitutional a provision to uh, just ram it through unilaterally. The outrage uh, around this uh, has only multiplied since then, and uh, it, it seems like it's going to be uh, a long, uh, protracted battle. The French, as you said, are uh, accustomed to uh, protesting and, and challenging their government in a way we don't often see here in the United States, and we'll have more coverage of that movement in our May Independent as well. I know you're in touch with our correspondent over there, on a regular basis. Uh, so uh, we'll be back with more after this short break. Listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM and on WBAI.org. I am your co-host, Ambagir Garian, here with my other host, John Tarleton. And uh, we are going to be turning to Coney Island for our second segment, where tenants in NYCHA complexes, of which there are 10, have been fighting against their buildings being privatized. Over recent decades, the federal government has decided to privatize essentially all the existing public housing in the country. That is housing that's owned and managed by the housing authority, so here it's NYCHA. In the early 80s, the government stopped building public housing and start carrying out those schemes, which have been developed much further in other cities. For example, we have uh, San Francisco, uh, where there's no more public housing and an extremely high rate of homelessness. 
And so with privatization, those buildings are essentially taken over by private companies who have then the ability to convert the buildings to market rate uh, rents, uh, which obviously results in tenant displacement. And in New York City, the companies that have uh, taken over so far have been essentially slum lords. The city brought in a man named Greg Russ, who is in charge of privatization schemes in a number of U.S. cities, most recently Chicago. NYCHA started privatizing here in 2016, and Human Rights Watch released a report in the beginning of last year called The Tenant Never Wins. That's The Tenant Never Wins. They went to Ocean Bay, the first development that was privatized in Far Rockaway, where they found that the eviction rate was twice as high after privatization and that there were rent increases and no repairs. The city's current plan is to convert 62,000 units to these public-private partnerships by 2028. Since launching the plan in 2016, 36,000 apartments across 137 developments have undergone conversion or in the process. And there's been some change in the names of these privatization plans from RAB to PACT to housing preservation trust schemes. But at the end of the day, what's happening is that public housing is going into private hands. And so we have an organization called the United Front Against Displacement, or UFAD, which is a national tenant organization against gentrification. And I spoke earlier with one of their New York City organizers named Chantel and a tenant organizer down in Coney Island named Named Orlando Mendez, whose family has lived in the O'Dwyer houses. And again, that's one of 10 complexes down there since it opened in the 1980s. UFAT has been organizing against privatization here in New York, as well as other cities um, like Boston and San Francisco, Oakland, uh, for a few years. And actually, um, some tenants at Haber Houses, which is a senior development in Coney Island, um, called UFAD to say, we've heard about privatization. Um, and we're already organizing against it, um, but, you know, we want to be able to work together. So from that, um, we formed a UFAD branch in Coney Island and have, have been organizing against privatization at these various developments, which Orlando can talk about more. I will say there was a victory at Haber Houses where the vast majority of tenants signed a petition opposing privatization, which did pressure NYCHA to say that they're not going to privatize um, at Haber. Great. And Orlando, you are living at O'Dwyer Houses. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about how you got involved with this struggle um, against privatization and with uh, UFAD. I know you're a member of UFAD Coney Island. Um, and tell us a little bit what is at risk uh, for, for your neighbors and fellow tenants and uh, how your neighbors and fellow tenants have also been sort of mobilizing. So um, I got involved uh, fairly recently um, with the organizing that, that took place at uh, Haber Houses. Actually, the the final final event that took place, which was the uh, the protest that took uh, place on Surf Avenue, Twenty Fifth Street, uh, several weeks ago. Um, I, you know, became aware of what was going on, and I took interest in it because I knew of the danger of privatization uh, going back uh, when it began in two thousand and sixteen, which is when. Um, my neighbors started expressing concerns and alarm about uh, the uh, looming privatization of our complex, O'Dwyer Gardens. So I, I became involved um, because of the, the fact that you look at my neighbors, you look at the residents, um, the majority of people that live in uh, NYCHA complexes are a lot, of, there's a, a large number of senior c- citizens, uh, elderly people, um, 
over the age of 60, people in their 70s and 80s and beyond. Uh, but there's also a number of uh, disabled people that occupy these apartments. And so it w- became very concerning that you, privatization um, threatens uh, displacement uh, because of the fact that the the developers and the uh, managers are able to uh, manipulate and increase the rents and, of, of course, the increased level of evictions for probably petty reasons, finding a reason to evict people, um, to vacate the apartments, et cetera, et cetera. So my, my neighbors have been uh, alarmed and, and concerned about it. It's caused a lot of stress amongst the senior population here, um, literally displacement uh, to them means homelessness. You look at it and you say they've got no place else to go if they were to lose their homes, their apartments, that many of the people who lived lived here for years. So there's not a wealthy element to the tenants here. Um, There are are a lot of retirees here besides um, the elderly uh, immigrants and uh, people that occupy these apartments. A lot of people don't realize how many uh, retired New York City employees live in these apartments. On my floor alone, I've got uh, two New York City retirees um, that live on my floor, but there are others. There are retired teachers, there are retired transit authority uh, workers, there are retired uh, NYCHA employees living in these buildings and other city agencies. Uh, so these are not wealthy people. Um, you know, that uh, most people are on fixed income. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people um, uh, that live in these units uh, work like I do because I, I'm not retired, I still work. Um, and so, you know, you look at it and you say, I cannot afford uh, an apartment such as uh, 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 has been built across the street with um, the um, uh, Ocean Drive apartments, the two building complex that was built by John Cuts and Mercedes, where studio apartments started $1,800 a month. And you look at it and you say, you know, what the average rents are, uh, you know, outside of NYCHA. Um, so you, you look at it and you look at the stress. Um, that is created, um, you know, stress that's not needed by elderly people, people that 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 have struggled and and you know lived to a ripe old age, and you know they don't need the stress of, of, of or the thought of being displaced and losing their units and possibly becoming homeless. So right. I became involved with that uh, because I was concerned about my neighbors, about the residents of of, of the NYCHA complexes throughout uh, Coney Island, of which there are many, and of which there are many tenants. And that is John Katzmanzidis, New York's very own oil baron. I'll leave it at that. People can look him up. Correct. (laughs) And Orlando, you have lived in NYCHA, or your family has lived in NYCHA for decades uh, since the O'Dwyer houses were built, actually. So um, talk a bit about how that ties into your perspective uh, as far as uh, declining conditions go and how uh, the declining conditions are what push some tenants to uh, be in favor of privatization, but how um, it's all somewhat of a farce. Right. So my, my family has occupied this apartment since 1968 uh, when, when O'Dwyer Gardens first opened. So that's 55 years. I am uh, the third generation of my family. My grandmother and aunt were the original tenants. My father was the second tenant, and I am now the third tenant officially at this apartment. Um, so, you know, you look at it, and you, when these apartments first opened, the O'Dwyer Gardens uh, complex was the gem of nature at the time. It was a unbelievable complex um people who just couldn't believe it was it was public housing because of the fact that a we have terraces b we have a 
air conditioning ducts. None of the other prior NYCHA buildings had ducts for air conditioning, for, for the ability for tenants to actually place air conditioners in their in their apartments and uh, not boil in the summertime here. So it was a very different complex. It was a really a quite quite a nice complex when it was first built. Uh, you know, the tenants that moved in to these buildings and these apartments were very proud to live here. You know, when people asked, where, where do you live? I, I live at O'Dwyer. You know, it was, there was pride. There was a ring of pride and having to say that to people that asked. Um, but, you know, over the decades, over the years, you, you, you saw the decline um, of NYCHA and and the decline of O'Dwyer Gardens and uh, the decline of uh, O'Dwyer Gardens uh, for the long-time tenants uh, it has been a very sad event. Um, you know, many of us remember what these buildings were like when they were first built and, and looking at the declines and the lack of maintenance and the elevator service constantly breaking down. And then, you know, several months ago, we have we have infrastructure construction going on here uh, at O'Dwyer, uh, but throughout the complexes in, in um in uh, Coney Island for the Sandy recovery uh, infrastructure uh, improvements. Um, so there's a, that, that's actually caused a, a lot of a lot of issues for us uh, throughout the island, as particularly here at uh, O'Dwyer Gardens. Uh, several months ago, we lost uh, our gas at, at at several buildings. My building was, was completely without gas for for two weeks. However, however, that's not the worst of it because one of the buildings has been without gas for a year. Uh, and and that's just the tip of the iceberg because uh, some some apartments, um, I believe Surfside uh, has been without gas for going on two years. Wow. Yeah. So so we, can, look- we can see why people would be open to um, another option, especially if they're being told that uh, privatization can help some of these conditions. But Chantel, uh, you, you're saying that that is not uh, how things tend to go, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Um, actually, I think last time UFAD was on the independent, um, we were talking about the situation at Harlem River Houses. Um, so that, uh, was privatized last year, taken over by the Slumlord CNC management. And the situation there has gone much, much worse, um, since the privatization in terms of repairs. You know, the heat went out the first day that the company took over. Um, so things definitely get worse. Oh, okay. So, um, Orlando, let's talk a little bit now about um, the question of casinos being brought in right near you. Uh, former city council person Andrew Carnegie is uh, pushing hard, along with many developers and business people, to have casinos built um, right near you on the Coney Island stretch. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, the community's response? He was brought in to a lobby on behalf of the developers and to promote it and to kind of uh, spread the propaganda and the lies of what what the casinos uh, propose they will bring to uh, our community. Um, so uh, the reaction um, to, to him uh, hasn't been very, very received very well. Um, uh, some folks are aware of the fact that he's, he's a, a politician, a former city council member, essentially hired, you know, to, to promote and um, to, to deceive the community into what we will, how we will benefit. Uh, from the casino, so the majority of us here haven't been fooled by that. By that, um, not at all. 
it's not the first time that we faced the, the, the proposal of casino here. So a lot of longtime Coney Islanders that were pro, uh, opposed to casinos here in the 70s uh, continue to be uh, uh, opposed to this contemporary proposal. Um, it's not not something that people want. We're, we're, we're kind of a, a small a small town kind of a mentality here. Coney Island, uh, you know, changed in the 50s and the 60s with uh, with urban renewal and the bringing of the high-rise uh, NYCHA complexes. Before that, it was a low-rise community. Uh, and, you know, that small small town uh, mentality uh, survived until recently. Um, it actually still survives. So people aren't, aren't in, in, into the... The, the the fact that you know uh, the, the neighborhood is being uh, gentrified and uh, additional high rises are coming in and the additional density of of, of community members uh, the number of of, of people uh, living in communities uh, is is increasing um, incredibly um, and how how that stresses out um, you know overpopulation um, not enough uh, uh, schools uh, for the children that will move into this community overtaxed infrastructure so far as transportation is concerned we have a poor west end transportation uh, system here with the buses the two the two the, actually three buses that service our community there's just not enough of them and very often uh, during during rush hour and commuting time in the morning for you know people that work and, and school children the buses are Always, always overcrowded. That just not enough buses. Uh, so there's a lot of stress that the that the uh, looming casino brings because of additional development, additional uh, density that it's going to bring, additional traffic, which which overwhelms us here in the summertime. One of the biggest complaints of people that that live here is the the extreme amount of traffic. Uh, it's just an overwhelming thought for a lot of people um, that live here that it's a transformative kind of a, a, a situation that we face here with, with the uh, casinos, and never mind the additional construction of the high-rise buildings that are coming here. Um, it's, it's, you know, it, it's the destruction of Coney Island as we know it, as we knew it, as we grew up, grew up in. So right. we're not, so we're, we're, we, you know, we're organizing to oppose what's going on with, A, the privatization of NYCHA and, of course, the coincidental uh, prospect of a, t- uh, of a casino uh, coming here that we really don't want. Absolutely. Um, well, more power to you all. Uh, that is that is a, a serious fight. So, um, and we'll, we'll wrap it up here in these last couple minutes. Uh, Chantel, tell us a little bit about how uh, other complexes and other neighborhoods around the city are involved in similar uh, organizing efforts against this privatization um, and what uh, we have uh, coming up uh, on the docket for uh, actions in Coney Island and how people can get involved um, and attend uh, and keep up with you all if they'd like to. Yeah, so, you know, just um, to kind of build off what Orlando was saying, I mean, we really see that the the rich and powerful, you know, the, the developers, the politicians, the banks that are backing a lot of this development, um, they have a plan for Coney Island, for all of New York City, um, and really every city in the country to be, you know, a playground for, for the rich. And anyone who stands in the way of that, uh, they want to get rid of. So... Uh, you know, we have to come together to um, build some resistance, oppose these schemes. Um, in terms of things at Coney Island, uh, right now we have ongoing petition efforts at actually every development in Coney Island. 
Um, so in terms of the fight against the privatization, uh, we have a protest this Saturday, April 22nd at 2 p.m. Um, at an intersection between a few of the developments at West 33rd and uh, Neptune. So if people um, can come out to that, that would be great. Um, that's at Surfside Gardens, where um, there's been at least a few hundred tenants that have signed on to a petition opposing privatization. And then tomorrow, uh, Wednesday, April 19th, we're having a protest against this proposed casino. Um, that's at 6 p.m. outside of uh, Gargiulo's restaurant on uh, West 15th and Mermaid, um, where the, the developers are trying to sell this um, casino scheme to people. Um, so we're going to be there to uh, say that, you know, the community is very, very opposed to this. Great. And then how can people uh, get in touch with the United Front Against Displacement or follow you all if they would like to? Yeah, so um, we're on social media uh, at the UFAD um, across social media. We do have actually a Facebook group for UFAD Coney Island. Um, we have a website where we add um, updates about the struggle in Coney Island, as well as, um, I forgot to mention, we're organizing right now against the PAC privatization at Manhattanville Houses in West Harlem. Um, but, you know, we really, uh, we know that any successful movement and fight against privatization has to be across NYCHA. So we really want to, um, you know, if you live in NYCHA or know people in NYCHA, you want to organize and fight against privatization, please reach out. Absolutely. Well, uh, Chantal and Orlando from the United Fronts Against Displacement, and specifically at Coney Island, in Orlando's case, thank you so much for joining us on the Independent News Hour on WBAI, and uh, we'll be keeping up with you. My taxes, a uh, song earlier today by the Raging Grannies at a uh, tax day anti-war protest in lower Manhattan held by a number of uh, peace groups, Brooklyn for Peace, War Resisters League, Veterans for Peace, and a number of others. Uh, and that uh, footage was from Ashley Marinaccio. And uh, you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton, also here with my co-host, Amu Gagarian. And before we continue on with our uh, final uh, segment for uh, this evening, we want to ask uh, our listeners to please support this uh, station. As uh, as you know, WBAI is a unique uh, resource. And, of course, we live in a country where, uh, as we saw uh, today, our priorities are greatly uh, out of whack. Uh, more than $850 billion a year are going uh, to the military. Uh, the, the 
the people who were protesting, uh, they're urging city council to uh, speak out on the um, incredible theft of resources uh, from this city and every other city and town in the country. Uh, uh, you wouldn't believe this, uh, but uh, Amit, you, you and I were talking uh, recently. We had a story uh, we posted on our website uh, about how New Yorkers contribute $29.3 billion a year. Billion. B- billion to the, yeah. yeah, not million, billion, $29.3 billion per year to the military uh, budget uh, from their tax dollars. And another way of looking at it is over half of the money you pay in income tax uh, to the federal government each year goes to military or national security related spending. There's the, the money that goes directly uh, to the Pentagon and, and gets handed out to the arms makers and all that kind of stuff. There's also money uh, for the CIA, NSA, all those kind of agencies. Also, the, the Veterans Department, which has to care for all the uh, wounded soldiers from uh, previous wars, the Department of Energy, which plays a large role in our nuclear stockpile. Um, and, of course, the, the debts that we've uh, – uh, the, the the national debt that – in large part is caused by past wars and military spending. So think about what you paid in your income tax this year and know that more than half of it is going to military related spending. With that in mind, uh, you know, can you, let's uh, contribute a little bit to things we actually need, like this radio station. Um, you know, it, it, whether you can give a little or a lot, you know, let's, uh, let's fund and support the institutions that really make our city uh, uh, and our world uh, a better place. 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give number 2, WBAI.org. That's 212-209-2950, or go online to give number 2, WBAI.org. Uh, and like John said, let's keep the institutions here that matter and let's keep independent media alive because the situation is that when media isn't independent, it's corporately owned. And so the same big business um, that, you know, lobbies for all this tax money to go into war uh, can control the narrative of the media. That is the very real reality. Ten percent of media is independent and uh, WBAI is one of those beacons of light. And if you want to keep hearing us report on things like the fact that nearly 60% of your taxes goes to military, then please give us a little bit of your money to keep us on the air. You can do so by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that's 212-209-2950 or online at give the number two WBAI.org. And I uh, am an announcer and a listener. I listen to the radio all the time. And I am very familiar with the feeling of hearing a donation pitch and thinking, uh, I did that earlier in the year or someone else is definitely going to give because this station is so great. The reality is that not enough people are giving. We struggle every single month to pay the rent. So please uh, give us 10 bucks, 20, 30, 40, 500, become a monthly donor, call 212-209-2950 or go online to give the number to WBAI.org. And we promise none of this money will be spent on tanks or fighter bombers or missiles. Uh, WBAI has no military 
uh, force. Uh, we're spending this money to keep the transmitter and the antenna uh, up on uh, top of uh, four times square so we can broadcast across the city so uh, we can pay our rent um, and other very fundamental expenses. 212-209-2950. For our final segment, we're going to turn uh, to Albany where there's a a fierce battle underway over the uh, annual state budget, which is uh, how uh, government funding for the next year for all sorts of uh, programs across New York gets allocated. The budget uh, will be uh, more than $225 billion, but who will benefit from it? Uh, There's all sorts of uh, great um, initiatives that people, the progressives and socialists are fighting for in Albany, good cause eviction, uh, public uh, energy um, and, and uh, improving the MTA uh, funding for CUNY, etc. Uh, however, the budget is at an impasse. It was due more than uh, two weeks ago. And I spoke uh, earlier t- today with State Senator Jabari Brisport, a Democratic Socialist from Brooklyn. And I started by asking him, what's holding things up? The governor for the second year in the row is looking to change uh, criminal justice law to roll back people's uh, civil rights and lock up more people in pretrial detention. Um, it has nothing to do with the budget. It is also immoral. And for the second year in a row, we have a delayed budget because of her political choice to do this. And uh, do you see any room for compromise on this? If you could win concessions in other areas, you're hoping to make advances or... Are any changes uh, unacceptable at this point? I really think it's unacceptable that she is using um, the budgetary process where she has outsized influence to push through an unpopular political move, which she knows she couldn't get done any other way. Right. Can you talk a little bit about the connection between her push for both bail uh, reform rollback and discovery reform rollback, another part of the 2019 legislation she's trying to overturn? Yes. And for bail reform rollbacks, she is pushing for changes that give judges more uh, discretion to place people into pretrial detention or um, remove the least restrictive standard to put more people into pretrial detention. For discovery, she is seeking to make it harder for defense attorneys to do their job and easier for prosecutors to essentially get people to self-incriminate. Right. Um, and, and uh, another part of um, the, the budget battle revolves around uh, the governor's push to increase the cap on charter schools in uh, New York City. Uh, can you talk about that and why you find that objectionable? And especially as someone who was a uh, public school teacher before you uh, went to the state Senate? Yes, I taught in an underfunded school, just like every other public school in New York City. And I recognize that it is a zero sum game in terms of funding between charter schools and public schools and that any increase in zombies uh, in in charter schools or zombies will lead to a decrease in funding and um, a decrease in resources for public schools, which I find unacceptable. And, And what do you mean by what do people mean by zombie charters? 
Uh, a zombie charter, you can think of a charter like a permission slip, no pun intended, from the state <laughs> for a, um, you know, for, for the, a privately run, um, but publicly funded school. And a zombie charter is a charter school that closed down, but retained its permission slip. And so the push is to um, uh, let other people have that charter. But just to go a little further into the charter school controversy, uh, I mean, advocates of charter schools say, well, it increases the number of choices that uh, uh, parents and students have. Can you talk about, I guess, some of the practices of the charter schools? Yeah. Whenever I hear parents um, talk about um, why they wanted to put their child in a charter school, I almost never hear them talk about the pedagogy or the style of teaching there, then, which is important because charter schools always claim they're revolutionizing education. I hear parents talking about wanting a school that has after-school programs, um, that has other enrichment programs where the, the stu- their child can get a nice new fresh book or other resources, which to me is a funding thing. So as of now, you know, I, I wish we had choice, but there, there is no choice when our public schools are underfunded and those students can't get all those things um, meanwhile, you know, we have this movement to um, put people into privately run schools that get public money and then also um, unaccountable, uh, un- unknown amounts of, of private money from people like Mike Bloomberg. Right. And, and, and can you talk about the, the role that uh, Bloomberg and, and other wealthy supporters of Hochul are, are playing at this moment in the in the budget impasse in Albany? Uh, yes, Bloomberg, uh, a major proponent of charter schools, launched uh, a, a f- or participated in a five million dollar campaign to blast the state with mailers telling people to call their legislator and support Hochul's budget, uh, specifically with um, to support the increase in charters um, and to avoid any new taxes on the rich. Uh, another uh, matter the state Senate in particular has been dealing with is the um, appointments to the New York Court of Appeals, the highest uh, court in New York. It seems like Rowan Wilson is cruising to become the next uh, chief judge of New York. But the second appointment that uh, Kathy Hochul made to that court, uh, Caitlin Halligan, former corporate attorney, uh, revelations just came out yesterday that she was a lawyer in the Chevron case with Stephen Donziger, uh, a lawyer uh, on behalf of indigenous people in Ecuador in the in the rainforest. He sued Chevron, won billions of dollars in damages, and then later faced uh, uh, incredible backlash from Chevron. And, and it's not we now learn that Halligan was a part of that sort of legal hit team that went after Donziger and, and sent him to federal prison. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on this appointment and whether uh, the Senate is going to scrutinize it as closely as it did uh, Hector LaSalle? I think we should absolutely scrutinize um, the Halligan nomination. Um, and it's not just the the um, case with Chevron versus Donziger. I've seen people flag things for me regarding her comments on same sex marriage um, and other things are just are coming to light. So I, I think it's absolutely important that we don't rush the Halligan nomination. This is New York's highest court. Um, it's the highest court in the New York state. And we can't take any chances or rushing with with the process of, of anybody on, on the court. So it's not already a done deal with the leadership. Uh, I mean, we got this, these two appointees at the same time. One seemed very good and the other questionable is, I mean, has the trade already been made? It's not a done deal until, you know, they, they're voted in. And, you know, it used to be in Albany that, you know, the legislature, the Senate would serve as a rubber stamp for a nomination. Um, and then um, only in recent years, uh, people have started paying more attention to the importance of courts. 
And as we saw at the LaSalle nomination, um, that notion of the Senate being just a rubber stamp to whoever the governor sends over is no longer true. One last question on Hochul's tactics in this budget battle. I understand that legislators don't get paid when the budget is running late. Is she just trying to uh, starve y'all out until people uh, need a paycheck? Potentially. (laughs) And funnily enough, she does still get paid. It's only we don't get paid until the budget is done. Um, So there's that imbalance. But, you know, I, I know I'm prepared to hold on on for as long as it takes um because this is important this is a budget that affects you know eight, 18 million new yorkers and that that's important to me and I, I it's really disgusting that she wants to play political games and that was state senator jabari brisport speaking with wbai earlier uh, today about the budget impasse uh, in albany uh, between Governor Kathy Hochul and her conservative backers and uh, progressives and socialists uh, fighting, uh, obviously, for very different uh, agenda than the governor. Uh, we have to uh, go here in a minute. Uh, um, uh, want to thank everybody who's been listening. Also want to thank our board operator, Reggie Johnson. Also, uh, uh, Sue Brisk, Ashley Marnaccio, and uh, Taylor Fleming for their a reporting from the field and uh amba what's our music we're going to end with uh today we are going to end with i think one of simon and garfunkel's finest the only living boy in new york <laughs>